You are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. I'll be reading from Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Not a long one like we've been having. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Well, good morning, uh, Manuel. Uh, it's good to see you. I hope that... Um, you had a great Thanksgiving, and you know it's not Advent yet. It uh, starts next week, um, but I do think that it is. Uh, I do think there's a point in having the Advent season after Thanksgiving, um, in that um, you're filled up and so thankful, and yet at the same time still longing for more, right? And so I think the Lord and His providence and putting those two seasons together really creates that yearning in us for Christ, for the second advent, which we'll get to next week. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, But a couple things I wanted to make you aware of. Um, One, really two, Joy has been working on a lot of stuff for our kids. If you're new to Emmanuel, um, Joy's our children's director. And there's a couple of things that you guys can have as parents for your children that she has been working hard on. One is every Sunday, kind of in line with this sermon series, she's going to be producing a a new activity sheet for our kids. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, on the back is a word search, uh, things to keep your kids occupied. But I think the most important part of this activity sheet is it is equipped, equipped. It has a couple of questions for parents to ask their kids on the way home from church to reflect on the sermon, to reflect on what was shared today. Um, because parents and children alike in this room, you hear the same thing I'm saying. Some of you here may be better than others. Um, but... We want to engage your families um, with the word. And so just, I just want to make you aware of that. First off, you can grab them each week as you come in, um, again, to, uh, just to give your children, but also just to, just to have a conversation, spiritual conversation with the kids. We want to equip you to have those things. Um, second thing is she put together uh, this Advent journal. Um, this is for your kids as well, beginning, is it December 1st, Joy, it starts? December 1st, day one. Each day has a text of scripture that your kid can draw what they think this text means. Kind of put a visual to the words, in a sense. So it helps them to be creative, helps you to engage as well, and maybe explain a little bit about what they're reading, what they're drawing. It's just another way uh, that we want to be engaging our kids in spiritual conversations. Um, And so we want to equip you with those things. And then I mentioned this last week and at the family gathering, but, uh, ooh, knocked over the gourd. Um, But... If you are uh, going to be with us through the duration of Luke, or you think you're going to be with us through the duration of Luke, we have these uh, ESV scripture journals for you. You can grab them in the back as you leave, along with what we're calling a personal spiritual rhythms guide. We've created for 2024 with a reading plan to go along with our sermon series. Um, and like I said at the family gathering, I want to say it again, anytime you're pursuing holiness in the disciplines, you also need to be 
cultivating, by God's grace in you, a high view of his grace. Um, Because you will drop the ball. You will not be 100% on your spiritual disciplines. And the purpose of that is not to spiral downward, uh, but it's to get up and to believe the gospel, that you don't have to be perfect, and that's the point. Um, And so we want to pursue holiness and at the same time have grace with ourselves that's rooted in the gospel. So grab one of those in the back as you leave if you don't have them already. Um, Yeah, I would really love for you to follow along. As we start Luke, which starts today, the first four verses, um, we're going to be spending the better part of this next year in this gospel, uh, the longest gospel of the four. Um, you're welcome. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, it's the, it has a only gospel with a sequel as well, the book of Acts, which Luke wrote as well. Um, Acts 1.1, uh, first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's Luke. And then the, in Acts, it is what Jesus continued to do and teach through the early church, through the Holy Spirit. But Luke is telling us what Jesus began to do and teach during his time here on earth. And Luke is also one of the most thorough gospels. I mean, it spans literally longer than the entire earthly life of Jesus because it starts with the announcement of the birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. So it starts even before the birth of Jesus with that announcement to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And then it ends with Jesus ascending back to his father in Luke chapter 24. So Luke will occupy much of our time this next year. I'm looking forward to diving into that with you. Um, But before we get into this week, I want to pray for us, and then we're going to open up God's word together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we believe your word. Help us to believe it more. And Lord, I pray that you do stir up in us just a great, joy seeing the gospel played out in the life of your son Jesus here on earth and through the early church as well and just pray Lord that that just stirs up in us great affections for you great humility and awe at the lengths you went to save us and uh, and may it just compel us forward to the nations uh, with the good news of Christ we pray these things in the name of Jesus amen a pastor Thabiti Annual Bule, maybe you've heard his name before, he said this. He said, we cannot live without belief of some sort. There are no unbelievers in the world, just people who believe in different things. In such a world, certainty becomes a rare and precious gift. The quest for certainty poses real dangers. We can give up on the quest prematurely, concluding that certainty itself is a hoax, or we can be certain about things that are wrong or false. We all face that danger. So we're left with a question. Can we be sure that what we believe is true? Can we be sure that what we believe is true? Certainty and assurance are two things that every human being that's ever walked this planet desires, even today. And it's not just in spiritual matters. You know, certainty is something that we seek to find in all kinds of spheres of everyday life. We seek certainty in relationships, so we want commitment, right? We want you to commit to me as I'm committing to you. I remember, it's been a while now, I've been married for a while now, praise the Lord, but I remember having that DTR conversation with Christine, the define the relationship conversation, about a month after we'd been hanging out, and I'm not going to tell you the story because it's embarrassing to me, but I'm sure Christine would love to tell you the story, um, not because she likes embarrassing me, but because, you know, she likes telling the story. So, um, but I remember that. I, we, we were having a conversation about commitment, 
right? We wanted, we're in a relationship, and so we wanted certainty in the relationship, so let's commit to one another in some degree or another. We also seek certainty when we're looking for protection of our house or our automobile or our health, right? It's called insurance. You know, insurance gives us assurance, right? Assurance that if something tragic happens to our house or our car or our bodies, that we will be taken care of with the treatment we can maybe, hopefully, afford. We want certainty with our finances, so we make investments. Now, now we can be reckless with those investments and invest in a lot of dumb things, but many of us probably are a little more conservative with our investments. We invest in things like mutual funds or retirement accounts, these more conservative things, so they can appreciate and we can have certainty financially later on down the road when we get to that age of retirement or whatever the case may be. Sign contracts for certainty and legal agreements. We have parent-teacher conferences for certainty that our kid is learning what he or she needs to succeed. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, every human being on the planet, regardless of culture, and especially in our culture, desires certainty and assurance in most matters in life. And nobody or very few people would doubt or question our desires for certainty in all the areas I just mentioned. Those are good endeavors in most people's eyes. But when it comes to spiritual matters, certainty is almost mocked. You know, it's ridiculed. It's seen as narrow-minded or, or at worst, bigoted. You know, doubt is celebrated and seen as humble, where certainty is scoffed at and seen as arrogant. You know, my generation, generation, uh, the millennial generation, I'm like at the top end of millennials, um, you know, it seems we doubt everything. You know, documentaries uh, are made literally of people doubting that the earth is round. And if that's you, let's have a conversation because I think you're a lunatic. But let's, let's talk about it. But doubt reigns and rules. You know, doubt is seen as attractive and cool. People that doubt are much more likely to get book deals than people that are certain when it comes to spiritual matters. And some of those hesitations about certainty are undergirded by something good. I don't want to throw it all under the bus. There's some hesitations that's kind of certainty because you know, sometimes certainty in spiritual matters can lead to an unloving, cold dogmatism, right? That leaves little room for questions, little room for dialogue and searching. It can lead to a lack of empathy for those walking through significant periods of doubt can lead to religious extremism in all the wrong ways. You know, I'm in the middle of reading through the book of Job, and I'm not yet convinced he's doubting God in the text, but he's for sure asking hard questions, right? Really hard questions. But at the same time, doubts in the scriptures are not celebrated. You know, God welcomes our hard questions. He's able to handle those hard questions. He's the Lord. He's not afraid and we have periods of, of doubt where we can't see what he's doing and we cry out to him from places of desperation and maybe even frustration. I mean, some of us in the room, we have significant doubts right now. Maybe about the Lord, maybe about where we are in life, maybe about careers, school, whatever the case may be. I think all of us at some time or another will have doubts about some aspect of who God is or where he's leading us because life is marred by brokenness and heartache and, and it's often hard to see the plan of God through the presence of tears, right? But the Lord desires for us to have certainty. 
to have assurance about his character, about his plans, about his love for us. And as we're going to see throughout this entire gospel of Luke, that's the heartbeat of Luke as well. So let's take a look. Three things this morning. Three questions, really. We're going to look at who is Luke? Why did he write this gospel? And what does he want us to have certainty about? So who is Luke? Why did he write? What does he want us to have certainty about? So those are the three questions. So let's start with number one, Luke's person. Who was Luke? Well, first of all, Luke was a doctor. He was a doctor. He was a physician. Colossians 4.14 is near the end of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, and He's running through kind of his final greetings to the church. And in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. You also see this kind of medical background come through in different places in the gospel of Luke. You know, one of his earliest titles for Jesus in the gospel is found in chapter 2. When the angels appear to the shepherds and they make the announcement, today in the city of David is born a savior. That word soter, that means savior in the Greek. It also means healer. So Savior, Healer, kind of interchangeable. One of his first titles is Savior, Healer. And this Healer, this Savior, had come into the world to heal the sickness, to heal the sickness of sin in each of us. And it's something Luke, as a physician, he longed to heal, right? To bring whole, holism, that's not a word, holism, you know what I'm saying, to people, physical, to make them well. But Jesus came, a much greater physician, much greater healer, so you see these healing themes come out a lot in the gospel of Luke. So he's a doctor. Second, Luke was a companion of Paul. He's a companion of Paul. Luke was a good friend with the apostle Paul. You know, uh, Luke wasn't one of the original 12 apostles like Matthew or John was, but he did travel closely with the apostle Paul. You see this in the verse we just read from Colossians. You know, Colossians is one of Paul's prison epistles which you know, people believe he wrote from prison. And, and if he's sending greetings from Luke, there's a good chance Luke was also in prison with him, right? The same time, at least visiting him on a regular basis. Also, there are passages all throughout the book of Acts. Remember, Acts is a second volume to the gospel of Luke. Luke wrote both, Luke and Acts. And in Acts, there are a variety of passages that they call the we passages. In Acts chapter 16, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. Or Acts 20, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. So Luke traveled with Paul. Luke was with Paul in many of his missionary endeavors. The author of Acts, Luke, traveled with Paul, ministered with Paul, was in prison with Paul, was a very close relation, associate to Paul over the course of Paul's travels in Asia Minor. That's the second thing. Doctor, close companion to Paul. Third, who was Luke? He was a Gentile. He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew. You know, church historians from the early church period talk about Luke possibly being from Antioch, which is the first place Christians were called Christians from the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. It was also the first place that officially sent out Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys. So it makes sense if if Luke was a member of the church of Antioch or was saved through the preaching of Paul in Antioch, that it would make sense for him to begin traveling, potentially with Paul, from Antioch on his missionary journeys. But Luke lived in Antioch. <coughs> Excuse me. 
But Luke's Gentile background is, is extremely important for his gospel. And we're gonna talk more about this in a second, but Luke's gospel of the four is the most universal in scope. The message of Jesus is not only good news available for all nations, but it's good news that can save all nations. And Luke is a living, breathing example of that, which we'll come back to here in a second. So those are the three things. And then fourth, fourth, Luke was a historian. Luke was a historian. Now, conservative scholars believe Luke was probably written around A.D., early, early 60s A.D., A.D. 62-ish. And I think there are good reasons to believe that, which go beyond our conversation for this morning. We can have that conversation if you want to. But if that's the case, then Luke had access to testimonies, to eyewitnesses. You know, as he states in verse 2 of our text for this morning, first-person accounts he had access to of things Jesus taught and acts he performed that he was able to compile into his narrative. You know, I, I, uh, I love reading history, particularly American history. I'm no Tim Hall. I'm not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I don't have a Ph.D. after my name in history. Um, but I enjoy reading it, reading the accounts of the failures and triumphs of men and women in early American history, their successes and struggles, or their perseverance and endurance. I love reading those stories. And I have a couple of authors that, uh, that I kind of gravitate towards when they release books more than any other authors, and those two are David McCullough and Eric Larson. Um, McCullough's John Adams, 1776, Truman, like, I loved, I loved those books. They're long, took me a while to read them, but I, I, it was time well spent, it's time well spent. Eric Larson, if you've ever read anything or heard about Devil in the White City or In the Garden of Beast or Dead Wake, I just, in, I've re literally read every book he's written. I haven't read everything McCullough's written, but I've read every book Larson's written. And I just love the topics that he chooses to write on. They're just so fascinating to me and and he's such an engaging writer, and I just, I just love reading, reading those accounts of history. But with those two guys, none of them has, neither of them, has written from a place of having access to the actual people who witnessed the events they're writing about. They may have written testimony handed down through the ages, letters, interviews, records of conversations, whatever the case may be, but they're not sitting down in the same room with the people having personal conversations with those who walk through the events themselves. You know, by the time they write, all the players in their stories have been dead for some time. And yet the questioning of if they're considered top-notch historians is never brought up. There's confidence in what they say, even though they've never talked to the people they're writing about. But not Luke. You know, Luke had the opportunity to sit down with many of the characters in his accounts. You know, I, I, did he? I think these are questions for us to think about. I mean, did he have lunch in Nazareth with Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she remembered all those things that she had stored up in her heart concerning her son in those early days of his birth? Did he go for a walk with the paralytic Jesus healed? after his friends who loved him so much ripped apart somebody's roof to lower him down before Jesus so that he may be healed? You know, did Luke and that guy joke about who paid for the roof after the fact, you know, after that happened? Which I heard 
Side note that that would be a good text to preach on a building campaign, but whatever. Um, we're, not, we're not going there anytime soon. Uh, you know, but whatever the cost was, I'm sure it was worth it, right? Did he meet with one of the 500 people Jesus appeared to after the resurrection? As they recounted with awe and wonder the fact that they'd literally seen a physically raised Messiah with their very eyes. He could have. I don't know if he did, but he very well could have would have carefully noted all the details and presented them in a responsible way to his readers because Luke was a historian. That's what he did. Which leads to our next question. Why did Luke write his gospel? What was his intent in writing? We've talked about it a little bit already, but it was to provide Theophilus and us as Christ followers assurance and certainty that what one believes about Jesus is actually true. He writes to provide the Christ follower with assurance and certainty that what we believe about Jesus is actually true. He says as much in verse 4, chapter 1. Look at it again. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, namely the things about Christ. And this guy he's writing to here, Theophilus, his name literally means lover of God. And there's a, there's a debate you don't care about, about whether he's a literal person or is this like a pseudonym for just anyone who's a lover of God, like a group of people, or is it a nickname for the church, like the beloved of God collectively? Like, I tend to lean towards it being a real person that Luke is writing to for a couple of reasons. One, he gives him a title, Most Excellent Theophilus. So the other times you see that title in the book of Acts are in reference to Roman governors, Felix and Festus, actual people. You know, that was a title in the Roman culture that was a form of respectful address to people in high places. So there's a good chance Theophilus was a person of status and wealth that Luke is writing to. But Luke is writing to edify him, to assure him that Jesus is who he claimed to be. I mean, think about what's going on at the time Luke is writing this letter. Nero's in power. Christians are being slaughtered left and right. The faith is being rejected not only by Rome, but also by Jews who Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism, but they were rejecting it as false. I mean, everything around Theophilus may stoke the fires of doubt. And the events of what's going on in the culture may have been stirring up questions in him, like, is Christianity what I really believed it to be? Is it really sent from God? Was Jesus truly the Messiah ushering in a new kingdom when it seems like everything in the world around me is trying to snuff that kingdom out? Those are real questions. Those are real questions maybe you're asking right now. I mean, honestly, are you asking those questions in your heart? Are you really wrestling right now with questions about the legitimacy of Christ, the truth of the gospel, the power of the church? I mean, if that's you, then Luke was written for you. It's written for you. Luke compiled this gospel particularly for you to give you confidence and assurance that Jesus is truly the Son of God, the hope of the nations. And even if that's not you, if you're in a good place right now not having really any questions of doubt at this given moment, let Luke's gospel give more a more sturdy foundation for your feet to rest upon. Store away this gospel in your heart and your mind 
that it may be kindling to throw upon the embers that may come on down the road when life hits you hard. And Luke seeks to provide this certainty to achieve this goal and why he wrote in three ways that we can really see in our four verses this morning. Three ways. First, he writes of what was accomplished or fulfilled. He writes of what was accomplished or fulfilled. Look at verse 1 again with me in chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, there's a massive emphasis all throughout this gospel of Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. It's almost like God in the Old Testament. This is not a good dichotomy, but I'm going to use it right now. God in the Old Testament is the promise giver. In the New Testament, he's the promise keeper. He made a bunch of promises about one coming that he kept in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. In that way, in the way of fulfillment, Luke has compiled an accurate record of all that's been accomplished among his people. And one of the purposes of those first-generation Christ followers were to take those things that they had witnessed with their very eyes that were accomplished among them, all these things that were fulfilled in the Old Testament law and promises of the prophets, and deliver them to the next generation, to pass them down. And they did this primarily in the early church through the preaching of the word, through orally preaching the words of Christ that would then affect the listeners and comprise the local church. You see this in Acts chapter 2, right? First thing Peter does, he preaches, 3,000 people are saved, the church is established. It's there. But as these first generation believers start to get older, their memories start to fade, like many of ours will one day. Like Luke, many people sought to write down and preserve those oral teachings into written form that we have today. And one commentator I said, or I said, I read, said this. He said, the Jesus story is not a theory or an idea or a philosophy or even a religion. It's the tale of a thing that really happened. Yet it's not mere history, for it does something to the people to whom it's proclaimed. And my prayer for us, that I've been praying for us all week and even leading into this week, is that the gospel of Luke, when we hear it, when we read it, it will do something to us. That the Spirit of God will change us, will compel us in a variety of ways, but will compel us to love God more, to have more joy, to go to the nations proclaiming that which we believe. And I think that's one of Luke's goals as well. Second way Luke seeks to bring this certainty. He presents eyewitness testimony to the events. And we've discussed this a little already, but Luke is the only gospel writer to explicitly state that many of his accounts came from eyewitnesses. Now, Matthew and John were eyewitnesses in a lot of ways as well, but Luke is the only one that explicitly says, I'm compiling this from eyewitness accounts. He emphasizes that piece of it. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So the idea of being an eye, of eyewitnesses, of those people that were present during the ministry of Jesus, it was an extremely important thing, especially in those early days of the church. I mean, if you think about Acts chapter 1, Judas has died, right? They're looking to replace Judas 
with another apostle. And one of the criteria of replacing Judas is he must have been with Jesus throughout the duration of his ministry, every single day. And so Matthias is chosen in Acts chapter 1. It was a big deal. Eyewitnesses to the works of Christ and the words of Christ was a big deal in forming the leadership of the early church. And these eyewitnesses, they also ministered. And they saw and they spoke. You know, their witnessing of events wasn't intended to be stored away in the the mind and the heart and brought out at like family reunions and around bonfires. But it was intended to be shared and proclaimed to those in desperate need of salvation to the very ends of the earth. Luke takes those testimonies, he puts them into his gospel, and it's a record of what people saw and heard and touched and experienced themselves. It's right here in Luke's gospel. And then third, Luke seeks to give assurance in that he followed all things closely for a significant amount of time. That's verse three. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Like any good historian, Luke spent a significant amount of time gathering testimony and research and historical records, and he compiled it all in an orderly account, the fruit of his investigation, and what we now have is the Gospel of Luke, and he works into Acts as well. And as we move through this gospel, we're going to see different types of arrangement, order, that help us follow the flow of the movements of Jesus all throughout this gospel. But it is orderly. It's easy to follow. You're going to see what's going on. Big picture as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. Spends time in Galilee, makes his way towards Jerusalem to the cross. And we'll notice that as we go. So, who was Luke? Why did he write? Third question, what did Luke want to give us certainty about? What did Luke want to give us certainty about. So each gospel writer emphasizes different things in the life and ministry of Jesus depending upon their audience. So if you read the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew has a much more Jewish flair to the account. A lot of Old Testament texts referred to Christ fulfilled those texts. It's written to a Jew, primarily Jewish audience. Mark, very quick, Concise. One of the key words in Mark is immediately and immediately and immediately over and over and over again. It's probably written uh, in Rome as Mark is a close companion of Peter. And he, who knows how much time you got left in Rome at the time. So it's quick. It's quick. Probably written to Romans. John probably written to Greeks, which comes out in themes like Jesus as the logos, the word, which is a very Greek platonic thought of the day. So what does Luke emphasize in his gospel? You know, where does he want us to focus our attention and shore up our confidence? Well, first, he desires to show us that through his sovereign plans, God demonstrates his perfect faithfulness. Through his sovereign plans, God demonstrates, demonstrates his perfect faithfulness. Now, we discussed this a little bit already, but there's, again, a big emphasis on Gospel, promise, fulfillment, promises made, promises kept, however you want to say that. The gospel starts off, Luke chapter 1, it starts off with songs by Zechariah and Mary. Songs of praise of God's great deliverance and salvation to his people. I mean, Luke 1, 54 and 55, Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, echoes this in chapter 1, verses 68 to 72. And he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. That's how the gospel starts. And it ends with two guys walking on a road towards a town called Emmaus when they're joined by a third traveler, Jesus in disguise, kind of. And Jesus unpacks for them all the ways the Old Testament spoke truths about him that he has fulfilled. This gospel is bookended by a God who always keeps his word, who made ancient promises and fulfilled ancient promises and makes new promises that he fulfills every day and will fulfill at the end of time, even if the waiting sometimes seems long. Second, Luke seeks to communicate that the kingdom of God has arrived and is growing. The kingdom of God has arrived and is growing. It's this already not yet, right? We've talked about that before, this already not yet. Christ has come to usher in the new kingdom, and it is growing and expanding, moving, but it has not yet come in its fullness. We're waiting on that when Christ returns. And this will be extremely important for us next year, church. Next year, you know, if there's anything 2016 and 2020 have taught us, it's that the people of God's kingdom can very much put their hope in a lot of earthly kingdoms. Luke will remind us of what it looks like to be a kingdom people, to be citizens of a heavenly kingdom, while at the same time trying to navigate the tension of living in a, an earthly fallen kingdom as well. We're people of two kingdoms, two cities, the city of God and the city of man. And we'll need to heed those words. You know, I'm not looking forward to pastoring you through next year. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, I just, anyway, um, I love you, and um, I do, but I, 2020 was a mess, all right? I saw it secondhand from Johnson Ferry, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't great. Um, I may am looking forward to pastoring you and not. I shouldn't have said that. But I am looking forward to being your pastor. We're going to get through it together, all right? We're going to get through it together. But we need to heed these words coming up this year as this political rhetoric heats up and the temptation comes to engage in dialogue with family and coworkers, other members of this body in matters of politics that, that are not as important as we like to make them sometimes. They're not unimportant, but they're not as important as we like to make them. We'll constantly be reminded of what it looks like to live as citizens in another kingdom. A redeemed kingdom. All we work for and wait for the fullness of the kingdom to be brought in at the return of Christ. Let's be a different people. Let's be a kingdom people. The people of the third way. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Christ is calling us to this way. Let's be those people. As we love each other, interact with each other, interact with our community this coming year. Third. Luke emphasizes that the Holy Spirit is active and powerful in Christ and his people. You know, all the gospel writers speak of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John speaks about the Spirit a lot in his Upper Room Discourse, John chapters 14 to 16. But for Luke, 
The Holy Spirit is mysterious and powerful, works wonders and brings people into awe of what God is doing. You know, I think oftentimes, uh, I know for me, we're comfortable using the language of John to talk about the Holy Spirit, like comforter, advocate, helper, and all those things are true, and we love those things about the Holy Spirit, but all those things can seem safe. But Luke presents the Spirit as a moving, unpredictable force, person that we cannot tame. You know, he describes the Holy Spirit as coming upon the people of God like tongues of fire in Acts 2, causing all kinds of things to start happening that may make us in our more stoic evangelical tradition backgrounds feel a little uncomfortable. That's a good thing. You know, maybe some of us need to be uncomfortable with the movement of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to work in ways among us that we can't explain, but in ways that leave us in wonder and awe of Christ. You know, I'm going to pray and have prayed for a few more hands to be lifted during worship this coming year, for a lot more joy to be showing up on faces and in bodies this coming year. I'm going to pray that the Spirit compels our voices to get a little louder, that miracles become a little more numerous among us, that we see people brought from death to life this next year from the power of the Spirit, that he does see things that we can't fit into our theological boxes, can't keep him contained because he's the Holy Spirit. I want him to break out of those boxes that we kind of keep him trapped in. And that's going to be weird to navigate, but we're praying for it. We're going to be praying for it. And I hope you can pray for it too. And then fourth, fourth. Luke emphasizes that the gospel is good news for all people. It's good news for all people. It's good news in two ways, really. The downtrodden are lifted up. You know, the very first words in the ministry of Jesus are, are those in Luke 4 where he says, the spirit of the Lord's upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recovering, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty all those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You know, Jesus' ministry is to bring a great reversal, church, in how we view the world and people. You know, think about y'all, you know, do you feel... Do you feel downtrodden this morning? I know we're coming off Thanksgiving. Maybe we're still on the Thanksgiving high. But do you feel beat down? I mean, do you know what it's like to be poor? Economically poor, spiritually poor? Do you know what it's like to feel like you're walking in darkness? Like you need eyes to see? You can't just really see what's going on around you? Do you carry around past effects of, of trauma? that just feel like an albatross, like weighing you down every single day. You can't just take off. I mean, do you understand what it's like to be oppressed or marginalized or cast aside or overlooked? Do you, experience, do you, do you need to experience afresh the year of the Lord's favor? I mean, if that's you, if that's you, Jesus will lift up your head. 
Good news is coming for us in the Gospel of Luke, and hope is coming for us in the Gospel of Luke. And second, all the nations are now included. Not only will Christ lift up the downtrodden, but all the nations are now included. The Gospel of Luke, as I said before, is universal in its scope. It's a gospel for all nations, for all peoples, for all ethnicities. It's a gospel for people from all backgrounds. There's no cultural or physical barriers to the gospel anymore. They've all been torn down in Christ. And now we're one body. The redeemed church of Christ. We're one body in Christ Jesus. That's good news for us, is it not? I mean, we are Gentiles, most of us. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel made it to us. We praise the Lord for his grace in bringing us the gospel of Luke and the other 65 books we hold in our hands. I am, uh, man, I'm looking forward to this with you. Um, Super excited, super excited about it. I hope you are too. Let's pray together that the Lord is favorable towards us as we unpack his word in this coming year. Father, I, uh, I, I just, I'm, I'm extremely excited about the opportunity we have before us to open up your word and to study your word. Over this next year, particularly the Gospel of Luke, I am very grateful for your grace to be able to, to lead out in that. It's not by any merit of my own. It's not by any wisdom or knowledge I've attained, anything like that at all. It's because of your sheer grace and mercy that that we're doing this together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel, that it is good news for all nations. Because without that good news being for all nations, all of us would be hopeless, still in our sin. But Lord, we're looking forward to you seeing how Christ is the lifter of the downtrodden, how he is the binder of the brokenhearted, how he is the light to those in darkness, how he is the life to those who find themselves in places of death. I thank you, Lord, that this is a gospel for Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and Pharisees. It's a gospel that has the power to save anybody and the patience to bear with those who are slower to respond. I thank you for that patience in dealing with me. The mercy you've shown me us certainty and give us assurance that what we believe about Jesus is true, that what we have in our hands that we're studying each week is true. Father, may we store that away in our hearts and in our minds as as firewood, as kindling for when our hearts grow cold, for when doubts arise. May we as the body of faith at Emmanuel Church, the body of Christ at Emmanuel Church, may we come alongside 
men and women that walks through periods of heartache, of doubt, of uncertainty. May we take those logs that we've cut and throw them on the embers of that fire. May the Spirit of God just burn. Believe in your promises that your word will always be effective in what it intends to do. And so we pray that it is effective among us. May it be effective for life and not hardening. We love you, Lord. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.